If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Micah chapter 5. Uh, today and on Christmas Day, we'll be looking at two Old Testament prophecies about our Lord Jesus. Uh, and these two prophecies, I trust, will prepare us and help us appreciate whom we have in the Lord Jesus. Now this week we'll look at Micah 5 and next week, Lord willing, Isaiah 7. But what is interesting about both of these passages that we'll look at is that both Micah and Isaiah are contemporaries. Both address similar problems in the nation of Judah. Both sought to encourage God's people who were going into exile. Both were trying to encourage the people with the promise of the Messiah, uh, the Messiah who will save. And both passages that we'll look at are quoted by the Apostle Matthew in his Gospel, pointing out that Jesus is Emmanuel, the one who is born of a virgin in little Bethlehem. Now, though these are very different situations to our day and time, both prophecies, I believe, are tremendous encouragement to us and offer benefit to us because they help us to understand and appreciate who our Lord Jesus is. And so with that in mind, let's read our passage, and then I want to pray for us again. Micah chapter 5, and I'll only be looking at verses 2 to 5. This is God's word, hear it. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore ye shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now he shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Only so far in the reading of God's word, may he reform our lives to its truth. Let's pray again quickly. Our great and glorious Heavenly Father, what a great joy it is to come and sing your praises. What a great honor it is to sing and reflect upon all that your Son has done for us. The sins that he bore for us upon the tree of Calvary. His blood shed to purchase our redemption. And dear Lord, as we've lifted our voices in praise and joy this morning, we pray that you'd lift our hearts this morning to commune with you even in the preaching of the word. That, that we would see afresh the glories of your Son. And that our hearts again would be comforted by all of who he is and all that he has done. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would do this so that we would live lives in obedience to him and to you. That we would truly be living sacrifices who serve the great King that we have just so beautifully sung about. Help us in this, we pray. We confess our weakness. We confess our failure at times, our sin, our waywardness. But we confess again your goodness and your grace 
and your kindness and your patience. And so we do pray to you, Lord, speak to us now. Through feeble means, through a feeble mouth, we pray that you would talk to each one for the glory of your name. In Christ's name, amen. Imagine with me, you're in one of those epic battles you see in the movies, right? You've seen the Lord of the Rings, you've seen Chronicles of Narnia, you've seen how these mighty armies square up against one another, how they stand on the hills and they rush into battle and they shout, ah, you've seen those movies, right? I'm not alone. Now imagine with me, you're in one of those epic battles. You're there engaged in warfare. You're fighting on the front line for king and country. And as you rush into battle, as you give yourself to this foe that you're facing, you realize, wait a minute, you're not as strong as you thought. You're outnumbered by your enemies. You're fighting what seems to be a losing battle. Tell me, what would you do that, what would you do that if in that situation you look to your king who's leading you, the king that you're fighting for, you look to your king and you see him run away with his tail between his legs? What would you do? You would no doubt become very fearful. You'd no doubt want to run away too. You'd no doubt come to realize, wait a minute, you've backed the wrong horse. You've served a, a king who cares nothing for you, a king who leaves you to fend for yourself all alone on the battlefield. Now, why am I asking you to imagine this? Well, Micah is writing to a people who would come to see that they've served the wrong king, that they've served wicked and sinful kings who only served themselves, who cared little for them, and who eventually led them into destruction and despair. See, both Micah and Isaiah is writing to the nation of Judah, telling them that because they've served these sinful kings and followed their wickedness and rebelled against God, they will face the judgment of God. And what is that judgment? They will be carried off into captivity. They will be taken into exile. And their beloved city, Jerusalem, will be sacked and utterly destroyed. You see, both Micah and Isaiah is writing to a people going into exile, a people who will see with heartbreak and agony that they have followed the wrong king. And as a result, they will face despair and destruction and possibly even death. See, Micah is writing to a people who have trusted in the wrong king. Now, we are not too different from Judah of old. We too look to and depend upon and serve and trust the wrong king all the time. Whether it's wealth or power or positions or, or fame, whether it's our experiences in this life, whether it's relationships or health or even ourselves, we look to trust in, depend upon, serve these things thinking that by them we can find joy and peace and rest and satisfaction and fulfillment. We think that by following these false kings that rule our lives, that they can save us and give us what we truly desire, which is rest and contentment and satisfaction and joy and 
peace. Yet like Judah of all these false kings, these idols that we construct in our hearts, these kings will leave us all alone, defeated, disappointed, despairing, and dissatisfied. See, Micah is writing to a people who have served the wrong king. Now imagine with me again, you're on that battlefield still. There you are, you're fighting, and you've been abandoned by your king. Your strength is almost gone, your enemy has almost overtaken you, and your hope is completely crushed. Yet in the depths of your despair, you see another king on the horizon. You see another king rush into the battle alongside of you. You see another king come alongside and fight for you. A king who who overcomes your enemies. A king who gives you the victory. Tell me, how would you respond to such a king? Or you'd no doubt say, here is a king worthy to be served. Here is a king to follow. Here is a king who fights for me. Here is the king I need. Beloved, that's what Micah is saying in this passage. He's telling the despairing people of God who will be led astray by false kings, he's telling them, behold, here is the true king. Here is the king worthy of your service. Here is the king that you need. Here is the king that you need to look to because this is a king who conquers your enemies and this is a king who cares for you. Who is this king? Well, Hebrews 1.8 tells us that he's the king who sits on the eternal throne and who rules with the scepter of righteousness. Revelation 6.2 says he's the one who wears, wears a victorious crown because he conquers his enemies. Matthew 22.44 says that he's the one whose enemies are made to be his footstool. Revelation 1.5 calls him the one who rules over every earthly king. In fact, Revelation 19.16 calls him the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Who is this king? He's the king who is born in Bethlehem. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the king we need. This is the king we need to look to. Dear friend, have you been disappointed by false kings in your life? Have you been left despairing by those left despairing by those things that you thought would give you joy? Have you been left destitute by those relationships you thought could fulfill you and satisfy you? Have you been left despondent by the failure of your own self to save you and bring you the peace that you long for? Have you trusted in the wrong king? Or if you have, the prophet comes to you today and says, Behold, here is your king. Here is the king that you need. Here is the king that you've been waiting for. Here is the king that cares for you. Now what I want to do this morning is I want to look at six descriptions. I'll try and run through them quickly. Six descriptions of this king that I trust will lead us to joy. Joy and rejoicing in this king who is, who is Christ our king, who is God for us. 
the first description of this king is that he's a humble king. He's a humble king. Tell me, are you not amazed when you see royalty serve the weak and the frail and the needy? Do you remember how the world loved Princess Diana? They just loved her. Why? Because she cared for the poor. She was humble. She was caring. And see, those are the kind of stories that amaze us. Why? Because they're out of the ordinary. We know that generally royalty are far removed from us. Generally, they do not experience everyday life like we do. They live in fancy houses, fancy castles and fancy estates. They attend prestigious events and wear extravagant jewelry. Did you notice at the last royal wedding, you didn't get your invitation, did you? <laughs> Why? Because royalty is typically far removed from us. But not this king. Not this king. Look at verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel. She recognized that Bethlehem was small and insignificant. It wasn't prestigious. It wasn't great. It wasn't mighty. When Joshua divided the land in Joshua 15, he made mention of over a hundred villages and towns, yet he makes no mention of Bethlehem. Micah even has to clarify where Bethlehem is. It's Bethlehem in Ephrathah, which is a small, obscure village. And the point is this. This Messiah is a humble king that comes from humble beginnings. Now, why does that matter? It matters because this king comes from nowhere and he comes for nobodies. He's a king who cares for those who are forgotten, for those who are discarded, for those who are rejected. He's a king who cares for the lowly, the sick, the weary, the oppressed. He's a king who reaches out and touches the untouchables, the lepers, the prostitutes, the, the tax collectors, sinners. See, this isn't a king who, who only cares for the well-off. He isn't a king who only cares for those who have it together. No, this is a humble king who draws near to those who've messed up. To, to sinners. I, I, I don't know about you, but this is the king I need. This is a king who comes and meets me in my need, in my brokenness, in my sin. He does not despise me. But he draws near. See, I need a king who will draw near to me, who doesn't think me too wretched for him. See, this is a humble king. And beloved, this is good news. If you are a sinner, if you're broken by the pain and guilt of sin, if you're forgotten and despised and oppressed, maligned and forgotten by this world, weak and unimpressive, this is a king for you. A humble king who comes from nowhere for nobodies. So he's a humble king. Secondly, this humility is even emphasized when we see the second description of this king in that not only is he a humble king, but he is a divine king. He is a divine king. This isn't just any human. This isn't just mere any earthly king. No, this king, Micah says, is of old, of ancient days. This king is the eternal and divine son of God. He is the king 
of kings. He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. See, Micah says he's from of old. See, Micah is pointing out the, the divinity of this king. Now that same word form of old is used of God himself in Habakkuk 1 12, where it says, You are not from are you not from everlasting, O Lord? My God, my holy one. It's even said of God in Psalm 74 12, yet my God, yet God my king is from of old. See, this is a king who is divine. This is a king who is the eternal son of God, and therefore he is worthy of your adoration. He is worthy of your praise, worthy of your worship, that this divine, mighty, glorious king is a humble king and draws near to us. He is a divine king. But notice all this where it says in verse 2, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel. Now that's actually a very important comment. The kings in the Old Testament were meant to be faithfully serving God, right? And if they faithfully served God, the people were blessed, the people were encouraged, the people prospered. Yet in Micah's day, the kings were unfaithful, they were disobedient, they were self-seeking sinners. And who suffered? The people under them suffered. But, but, but see, again, not so with this king. Here is a king who doesn't serve himself. No, here is a king who serves God. Here is a king who isn't unfaithful, but faithful in all things. Here is a king who isn't sinful, but sinless. One who is without spot and blemish. And just imagine what a breath of fresh air this must have been to Micah's audience who were afflicted and abused by these sinful human kings who serve themselves and not God. See, this king is no mere fallen, sinful human king. No, he is a divine king. One who is perfectly faithful and sinless in every way and he is powerfully able to save. He is perfectly able to defend and lead and bless his people. Beloved, know this, there is no other king like this. And see, this matters because there is no other king like this, no other king more powerful and no other king more perfect. All earthly rulers are wicked, sinful people just like us. They are fallen in nature just like us. Yet here is a king who is unlike us, perfect, spotless. One who has conquered sin, who has overcome temptation, who has lived a perfect, righteous life for people like us. See, see, no other king deserves our devotion. No other king comes close. So he is a humble king, but also a, a divine king. The third description I want you to see this morning is, is not only that, but he is a redeeming king. Look at the strange comment in verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Now what does that mean? Well, to understand verse 3, you actually have to go back a chapter to chapter 4, verse 10, where it says this, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now 
you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Now he's speaking to the people of Judah who will go into exile. And then he says, there you shall be rescued. The Lord will redeem you from the land of your enemies. See, what Michael is telling us is this, that God will allow his people to go in the exile. He will discard them. He will spit them out of the land. God will allow them to face trials and hardships in this world. And it will seem as if God will give them up for a while to their sin. Yet the good news is, Michael says, God will redeem them. God will come and fetch them. He will return them. How? Through this promised king who redeems See, just as a pregnant woman has to endure immense labor pains, so too God's people have to endure the trials and hardships in this life. But just as pain in childbearing is overshadowed by the joy of a child, so too all the trials and hardships of God's people will be overshadowed by the joy of this coming King who rescues, who, who comes to redeem, who, who comes to restore His broken and exiled people. Look again what the text says. When she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return. Uh, that would return speaks of a king who redeems his people from the exile. See, it speaks of one who will free them from their enemies, who will free them from bondage, who will free them from the burden of their sin. Isn't that what the New Testament says about Christ? Has he not come to proclaim liberty to those in bondage, to those captive to sin? Has he not come to, to bring near those who were once far off without God and without hope? Has he not come to ransom a people for God from every tribe, tongue, and nation? See, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. He's the one who, who saves exiled sinners, who brings them and frees them and redeems them. And beloved, this matters because it tells us that God is for us. He, he, he hasn't left us in our sin. Our, our sin might be heavy and the punishment and the consequence of it might be dire, yet God does not leave us in it. He, he provides a Savior. You might be here this morning burdened by your sin, burdened by the wickedness of your failures. And it might seem that, that God's face has turned, that His smile has turned to a frown. Yet this promise matters because it tells us that, that God is for us because He's provided a Savior for us. A Savior who has not left us. And therefore we need to rejoice. We need to rejoice with Zechariah in Luke 1, 68 to 71, where, where at the birth of Jesus, he declares this. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Beloved, we need to rejoice because God has given us in the depths of our despair, in the depths of our sin, a Savior. A, a King who actually redeems us. So, so He is a humble King. He's a divine King. He's a redeeming King. Fourthly, 
He's a shepherding king. We, we sang that earlier, didn't we? Uh, the kings in Micah's day were, were more like wolves. Though. They, they, they cared only for themselves. They devoured the people under them. Uh, look at this description of the kings in Micah's day. In Micah 3, verse 1 to 3, it says this. And I said, Here are you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off from them, and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. That's a harsh description, right? Kings who serve themselves, who care nothing for others. Do we not know something of this? Don't we see corrupt leaders who, who prey on the weak? Don't we know something of evil men who use and abuse those below them? Yet the good news is, again, this king is unlike those kings. Look at verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. See, this king is kind and compassionate. If this king tends to his people like a shepherd, he, he guards them, he protects them, he watches over them, he leads them, he feeds them. This king doesn't live for himself. No, this king seeks the good of his flock. This is a humble king, a divine king, a redeeming king, and guess what? A king who actually cares. A king who loves his people. A king who comes not to be served, but serve. And beloved, how has Christ served us? How has Christ the king served us like a shepherd? Let him answer this. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But then he says, I am the good shepherd. He says in verse 27, 28 of John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Beloved, we need a king who cares. We need a king who comes in the strength of God Almighty. We need a king who comes and preserves and keeps his people. Beloved, that king is the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. Do, do we not need a king like this? When we are overthrown by the troubles of this world and it seems like all the security that we have in this world is overturned by chaos and despair and fear, when it seems that, that, that our strength fails us and it's all too much, it's not good to know that there is a king who keeps us. 
if, if our salvation depended upon us keeping on to God, we're in trouble. If our salvation depended upon the strength of our faith and the, our ability to cling to Christ in devotion and faith, beloved, that's bad news. We need a king who keeps us and preserves us. And, and this is the king who does it. So he's a humble king, a divine king. I forgot the third one, a shepherding king. And then the fifth one is he's a universal king. Look at verse 4. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. See, this isn't a king who goes by tribes. This isn't a tribal king. This isn't a king just for this group of people and not that group of people. No, he's the king who will be exalted over all people and over all the earth. His greatness extends over all the world. His dominion is from sea to sea. Which implies, doesn't it, that it doesn't matter who you are and it doesn't matter where you're from, you can turn to this king for help. You can turn to this king for strength and refuge. You can turn to this king for hope in your affliction. You can turn to this king who has authority in heaven and on earth. And how does he, he, he reign over all the earth? Because he's the savior of all the earth. Joel 2, 31 says, And shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And who is this Lord that saves? Who is this King that we must call upon to save us? And the New Testament is very clear. It's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 4, 12. And there is, no, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so, dear friend, if you long for a Savior, you don't need to run to all these deities, all these false gods of this world. No, there is one universal king who is king. In a sense, we don't crown him. He is king, and one day every knee will bow to him, willingly or unwillingly. And every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so he's a universal king. But sixthly and finally, he is a peace-giving king. He's a peace-giving king. As, as many of you know, the, the peace spoken of in Scripture is, is more than just a sensation of words. It's more than just peace from hostility. No, the peace that, that Scripture speaks of is, is shalom. It's wholeness. It's, it's spiritual well-being. A wholeness that we all naturally long for and desire Yet the wholeness that, that we lack, and ultimately because of our sin. And see, that's why we turn to look upon, depend, and serve these false kings and false idols of this world. Because we think that these things can, can give us that wholeness. We think that they can satisfy us and fill us. We think that they can offer us lasting peace. Yet you need to recognize that no matter your possessions, no matter your fame, no matter your relationships, no matter your experiences, if sin is not dealt with, there is no peace. Listen to Isaiah 48.22. God says this, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. If you remain in your sin, no matter what else you have, 
If you remain in your sin, you are devoid of peace. And you're devoid of hope. See, we desperately need our sin dealt with. And the good news of Micah is that God himself has promised to deal with our sin. Listen to the last verses of Micah. Micah 7, 18 to 20. Micah says there, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will trade our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you swore to our fathers from the days of old. Beloved, how can you be saved from God's wrath and anger? How can our iniquities, which are many, be crushed? How can our sins be cast into the deepest sea? How can we have the peace which Micah 7 talks about? Well, only through the king mentioned in Micah 5. Only through the king who Micah says in Micah 5 is our peace. And beloved, Jesus has given us that peace. He has purchased that peace for us. In Luke 2, we find the account where the angels appear before the shepherds and they declare the good news of great joy. Why? Because in the city of David in Bethlehem, there is a Savior who was born. And after they declare the good news of great joy, we are told that the heavens open up and the heavenly hosts sing this song. They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. And among those whom he is pleased, peace. See, the little child born in Bethlehem is our peace because that child lying in that cradle came to die upon the cross to purchase that peace for us. Colossians 1, 19-20, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Ephesians 2, 13-14, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the, in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Do, do, do you want peace? Do you want to be reconciled to God? Do you want your sins crushed and thrown into the sea? Do you want to be complete and whole and satisfied? And this is the king you need. This is the king you need to turn to and, and believe and serve. We need to be like those wise men who, who left their home in search of this king. And what did they do when they found this king in Bethlehem? They bowed the knee and worshipped him. Beloved, bow the knee to this king in faith. Worship him as your Lord and king and you will find blessed peace for your soul. Psalm 2.12 says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. O Bethlehem, behold your king. 
Oh, church of God, people of God, here is your king. He's a humble king who is divine. He's a redeeming king who shepherds his people. He's a universal king who brings peace in heaven and on earth. This is the king that is revealed to us in Scripture. But the only question this morning is this. Is he your king? Is the king that I've spoken about this morning a king who reigns in your life? Do you know anything about this humble king, this redeeming divine king, this universal king? Do you know anything of the peace that he offers? You realize there's, there's only three options to you this morning. First, you, you can deny this king. You can say, no, I want to live my own life. I want to be the master of my own fate. You can respond by rejecting this king. You can decide to not accept Christ. But be warned. Deny him and you will be without the shelter and refuge that your soul needs. You, you'll be out of the shelter and refuge that your soul needs when the wrath of God is poured out upon your sin. Your sin. See, the prophets like Micah and Isaiah speak very harsh words about the people who deny God as their king. Listen to this, this threat in Micah 6. And this threat is, is given against those who will not bow the knee to God. Listen to what it says in Micah 6, 13 to 16. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And, but, and what you preserve will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. See, those who deny the kingship of Christ, those who turn to the idols of their own making, those who would rather be ruled by others or by self, they will be judged with a perpetual dissatisfaction. They will hunger, but there is nothing to feed them. They will long, but that thirst will not be quenched. They will be judged and be handed over to their devices, and they will get what they want. Life without God, separation from God, yet there will be no peace, no satisfaction, no joy. So you can deny this king, but no, there's a cost. But there's another way you can respond this morning. You can confess him as king, yet deny him in your life. And this is perhaps the easiest option. It's easy to confess Jesus as your king with your mouth, yet deny him with the way you live. It's easy to be a Sunday Christian or a cultural Christian, but not actually live in obedience to Him as your King. It's easy to, to say you're a Christian, but Christ is absent from your lifestyle, your decisions, your thoughts, your speech, from what you do and what you watch, what you listen to. See, the Bible warns us against saying we know God, but denying Him with our works and our life. It, it warns us against saying that we, we honor God, but we dishonor Him with our hearts and our lives. Uh, listen to what Jesus says, Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So you can claim Christ all you want as king, 
But if that confession isn't producing the fruit of obedience, a life pleasing to the Lord, then you have no inheritance in glory with Christ. And you too will be dissatisfied, perpetually so. I'm sad to say there are many who, who claim Christ as their king, but unfortunately, unfortunately his kingship is missing. But, but how should we respond to Christ as king? Well, by confessing him as king and by consecrating ourselves to him as king. So you can respond to this king by actually believing that he is king, not just your personal king, but as the king of all things. The king who has, is deserving of your entire life. <coughs> Recognize this, Jesus didn't die so that you can live yourself, live for yourself. He didn't come and give his life as a sacrifice so that we can be our own Lord and Savior in this life. No, no, listen to Romans 14, 7-9. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. You might be saying to yourself, that's a raw deal. How can, can't I just live my own life? Can't I just follow my own path? Can't I just be the master of my own fate? Why do I have to submit to a king like this? Well, beloved, if Jesus is your king, let me tell you, that's not a curb to your joy, but that's a release for joy. This isn't a hamper to your satisfaction. This is a path to complete satisfaction. If you submit to Christ as Lord in all of life, you will find in unmeasurable joy in Him. Uh, Alistair Begg and Sinclair Ferguson wrote a, a book together, and, and in that book they mention of a Sunday school that they learned in Scotland some years ago. And one of the lines in that song goes like this, Come on now, we say that Jesus is King, why then are our faces sad? Jesus is king. See, they understood that, that if Christ truly is king, if we submit to him as king, the result is joy. Uh, Isaac Watts understood this in that famous hymn. He, he makes the same point, I, that Christ is king should create in us not sadness but joy. He says, joy to the world. Why? The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Heaven and earth and nature sing, heaven and earth and nature sing, and heaven and earth and sing, oh, heaven and nature sing, I'm messing that up. Joy to the earth, that's the point. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let their song employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, plains, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat, repeat the sounding joy. You get the point? Surely this should make sense. If Jesus is this humble king who is also divine, if he is this redeeming king who, who shepherds us with love, if he is this universal king who brings peace, then should that not create joy in our hearts, knowing that this is a king who is for us, a king given for us? 
Is He not a humble king who meets us in our need? Is He not a divine king who has the power to protect us and preserve us? Is He not a redeeming king who has been given to save us from our enemy, our sin? Is He not a shepherding king who, who saves us by dying for us? Is He not a universal king who calls us to Himself and who gives us peace and wholeness? O Bethlehem, O beloved of God, behold your king. This is the king you need. This is the king you need to rejoice in. In the words of Charles Wesley, Rejoice the Lord is king. Your king, your Lord and king adore. Rejoice, give thanks and sing, and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say rejoice. See, Christmas is a time of rejoicing, and may we be those who rejoice, because the king that we've been waiting for, the king who is unlike any other king, the king who meets us in the battle and saves us, the king has come in Bethlehem, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let us adore and praise him. Let's pray together. Great and glorious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the depths of our sin, that you have not left us to fend for ourselves when we've been disappointed by the kings of this world and the weakness of our own strength. Thank you that in our weakness, in our despair, in our defeat, you heard our cries of despair, you, you saw our need, and you sent your mighty Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our King. Thank you that he has redeemed us from sin, Satan, and death. Thank you that he has given us new life. And we pray that we would yield that life to him. That we would serve him with joy, knowing that serving him is no threat to our joy, but he's the path to greater joy. And so we pray even this festive season that we would truly rejoice with heart and mind and soul lifted up in praise as we think upon and reflect upon all that you have done for us. And may you above all, dear Lord, be pleased in our worship. We ask this in the name above every name, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.